was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are study values. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 2, Episode 4. Thanks for joining us inside the Cubbyhole. You join us at a propitious moment, so do make yourself comfortable. I'd press you to enjoy some cucumber sandwiches while listening, uh, but I guess you could partake of a bomb surprise if that's more your style. Uh, do let us know if you've been enjoying the new format for Series 2 by leaving us a review on your podcasting app or website of choice. Your feedback really does mean a lot to us and also helps us spread across the interwebs to more and more Bond fans. And do keep delivering great correspondence into our electronic postbag. You can drop us a line by email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. And as I'm sure you know by now, you can reach us via social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all your much appreciated follows, likes, shares, and messages. As ever, we'll select your best questions and queries to feature in the questions branch or the Q branch segment at the end of each episode. Now, in our previous episode, we heard from long-serving editor on several Bond films, John Grover. We discussed our 007 best leading ladies of the franchise, and Phil shared his interesting and incorrect thoughts on Richard Keel's Jaws. So what's lined up for this week? Let's find out with the usual suspects. Firstly, he's the Naomi Harris to my Samantha Bond. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Naomi Harris to your Samantha Bond. Does that mean that I'm going to replace you in a secretarial position at some point in the near future? But we can always switch positions if you want, Adam. <laughs> you can do the intro. No, no, I think you do the intro beautifully. I, I wouldn't want to change with you for the world. Uh, I'm very good, thank you. We've actually had a, a message in from friend of the show, Nicholas Broadstock, who rather unlikely has, has uh, sided with Phil on his weird theories. So going back a couple of weeks to um, your first theory on uh, Kleb and Irma Bunt being related, uh, Nick seems to rather think that uh, Kleb was in fact the lover of Irma Bunt and that actually, therefore, Tracy is the assassination target at the end of Honor Majesty's Secret Service all along. You know, a lover for a lover. I'm, I'm grateful to him that, you know, there's still legs on, on these theories that we've discussed in previous episodes. I mean, of course, if you're both right and Rosa Kleb and Irma Bunt were lovers and they were also in some way related, does that make them massively incestuous? Maybe, I don't know, maybe Spectre are, are promoting incest. You never know. Maybe this is a darker, seedier part of the, uh, the Spectre universe. Well, it would also explain why Carl Stromberg has webbed hands, wouldn't it, if he's just, again, a product of incest or he's just from Norfolk. And secondly, he's the Caroline Bliss to my Lewis Maxwell. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? See, personally, I'm I'm quite honoured by that, Martin. I'm I'm delighted to be classed as Caroline Bliss. Um, I'm very well, thank you very much, guys. Copacabana. Um, Her name was Lola. She was a showgirl. Phil's dancing. You can't see it, but he's dancing. It's a very little-known fact that I am one of the world's biggest Barry Manilow fans. Um, it is very, very. Um... You couldn't even convince yourself with that one. <laughs> 
No, to, to be honest, he's not high on my popularity list, let's put it that way. But anyway, moving swiftly on. So thank you to everybody that was commenting on our second episode. Um, we had a really great response to our best of 007 for our chases and pursuits. So we had a lot of people with their own kind of personal favourites. So Matthew Wilmot got in touch on Facebook. He was mentioning the GoldenEye Tank Chase, the Tomorrow Never Dies Car Park Chase, both of which that we mentioned, and of course the Lotus Chase. Um, and again, Gavin Clark also mentioned All Majesty's Secret Service, the great sort of ski sequences and the car chase in that as well. So, so many comments from you guys. So again, thank you so much to everybody that's been getting in touch. Unfortunately, we can't mention everyone in the episode, but thank you for all your comments. Please do keep sending them in. I didn't know you were such a music lover, James. Anytime you want to drop by and listen to my Barry Manilow collection... And we start with our first segment, which is on the scene. And this week, we're going to take a closer look at Bond's first encounter with supervillain Hugo Drax in Moonraker. But before you hear our thoughts, let's go over to Mr. Alan Partridge for his unique summary of the scene. Roger Moore hops into a chopper with sexy French pilot Corinne and her massive cleavage. Welcome to California, Mr. Bond. I like it already. They banter while sat in front of some very obvious blue screen and eye up fancy models of Drax's facilities before arriving at his shipped over from France palace. Oh, why didn't he buy the Eiffel Tower as well? He did, but they didn't give him planning permission to move it. They fly over a bunch of Barbie and Ken dolls doing yoga, then Bond crashes Drax's recital where he's pretending to play the piano. These two silent mannequin women bugger off, and Drax gets snooty about his rockets going AWOL and chucks a pair of filet mignons to his dogs. You have arrived at a propitious moment, Mr. Bond, coincident with your country's one indisputable contribution to Western civilization. Afternoon tea. Roger doesn't fancy his cucumber sarni, going off on Booby Corinne's guided tour instead. Drax turns to rent a henchman Char and tells him, Look after Mr. Bond. See that some harm comes to him. And Bond heads off to do a massive sexism on Dr. Goodhead. The end. Thank you very much, Alan. So this scene with Drax in Moonraker, kind of uh, similar, I guess, to the, the Scaramanga scene that we get, the, a villain who is uh, or thinks of himself as highly sophisticated. And uh, I think I quite enjoy the calmness of this scene. Sometimes the Bond villains are even more menacing, aren't they, when they do have a, a calm demeanour uh, and they feel like they've got control of Bond. They've got him exactly where they want him. This was your choice uh, of scene, Phil. Uh, I guess that was the, the main reason, was it? Also, the dogs, fairly menacing. You know that they're going to come back and, uh, and kill someone at some point, which, of course, they do. Yeah, I, I love this scene. I, I think that we were kind of overdue a Roger Moore, you know, on the scene for this one. So although many of us kind of view Moonraker not as uh, as good as it could have been, this, for me, is one of the very best scenes, simply because of the fact that, yes, you can argue that Drax is effectively a carbon copy of Carl Stromberg from the previous film, but in the way that Michael Lonsdale plays it, it is just so brilliantly done, the way that it is really suave, sophisticated. You get the sense he can match Bond at every step in terms of his own knowledge and his own, you know, his own background, because... He holds so many cards in his favour. You know, Drax has world leaders in his pocket. He's working with NASA with the Moonraker programme. He's got so many ways that he can manipulate people. 
there's this real sinister background and backdrop in this quite sort of elegant and you know and quite sophisticated setting and i just love the way that it all builds up you know and we get that great moment where um jack says to chow or to chang you know make sure that some harm comes to mr bond you don't really know where that scene is going up until that point when drax gives that quite menacing closing remark yeah that this whole sequence really establishes drax as super villain credentials to a t doesn't it there's that key lie corin says in the helicopter ride over what he doesn't own he doesn't want so we establish immediately the extreme wealth and power of this character i mean he really is in terms of the sheer level of his fortune, the biggest Bond baddie to date in terms of, as you say, the prestige and the influence he has. Um, you know, and, and what's interesting also to relate him back to Carl Stromberg is that they're both criminals, master criminals, but they're not like Blofeld and Spectre. They're not hiding in the shadows. They're not secretive. These are very wealthy, powerful men who everybody kind of knows. So they're very different. They're much more out in the open. Their money is what buys their super villainy and the extreme corpulent wealth of the character is just dripping in every, you know, sequence of this. I mean, of course, that joke about, you know, he has bought the Eiffel Tower. He owns it. The government just didn't give him permission to move it. And that's an interesting joke because it gets at the wealth, but also it sets him in opposition to a government. This is the one thing that he can't overcome, which probably explains the seeds of why he now wants to create his own world. So that the last thing he isn't able to buy isn't a problem for him anymore. Yeah, it is interesting that we've got kind of a public figure as, a, as an actual villain in the film. Kind of, uh, we could think of uh, comparable people in real life. Elon Musk has come in for some criticism in our podcast. I do actually quite like Elon, but uh, you can certainly see perhaps if he goes off the rails, if he has even less sleep than he apparently does now, uh, maybe he could, I mean, with SpaceX, anything might be possible. Well, I was going to say, Elon is also committed to the conquest of space. So, yeah, maybe it is, uh, it's is—it's happening right in front of us. Um, I'm not sure. He, I think the reason why people don't like Elon is he's not as aristocratic or sophisticated as Drax, isn't he? I mean, everything in that scene when we finally meet him from playing that piano sonata to, you know, the afternoon tea and the cucumber sandwich, but also the arrogant presumptuousness of the character. You know, he thinks Bond's there to apologise for the British government having lost one of his rockets. And that great line when he sort of parodies a line by Oscar Wilde, you know, to, to lose one spaceship would be considered misfortune, to lose two would be carelessness. He's almost doing that because he sees himself as a fellow wit, as having the intellect and the humour of Wilde. That's the level on which he sees himself, beyond even the money. He's an intellectual elite as well. And I just love his sense of elegance as well, because, again, we've mentioned the kind of sinister nature that, that Michael Lonsdale brings to the Drax character. One of the moments I love is just the fact the way that he holds his tea, even those little details that just make it, in some ways, it's quite terrifying, actually, the way that, you know, because he's not aggressive in any way, but it, that kind of makes you think, well, where is this going? Well, yeah, he's certainly not physically imposing, is he? In that way, he's fairly similar to the Blofeld that Adam doesn't like, <laughs> Donald Pleasance. Uh, but I guess, I guess, Adam, you prefer this villain a little bit more. Uh, so, you know, kind of he's got the wealth and he's got the power. He's got, uh, he's got henchmen are us on the line. Uh, he can just hire anyone and, uh, and take out Bond, although obviously his, his hiring is not quite good enough. The, the beautiful helicopter pilots as well, fairly similar to, uh, to Stromberg. Yeah, sort of bungling henchman and a, and a beautiful chopper pilot. Those do seem to be the things Christopher Wood decided were going to be his big bun motifs. Um, yeah, picking up on what you've said, he doesn't have to do anything really sinister because of all that money and that wealth. And of course, the chateau, which is surrounding him, there's an extreme opulence to be inside of it. And it almost 
you know, communicates how invulnerable and how untouchable he is. This is the first character, Frederick Gray, as well, doesn't really want to touch, does he, later on? He feels he has to apologise because Drax is a member of his bridge club or, or whatever it is. It's a bridge club in the novel. I mean, I guess he's got several places of residence. I mean, what bridge club are they going to that he can fly over every couple of days and see, see Sir Freddy? remember in Venice that he very quickly transforms that whole laboratory into yet another ornate sort of Georgian drawing room, doesn't he? I mean, it's almost in the blink of an eye. So maybe he does just have that one chateau flown over to wherever he wants it. It's sort of attached to a huge hot air balloon, sort of, you know, steampunk style. It's a floating city. Look after Mr. Bond. See that some harm comes to him. Okay, so it's on to our main feature for this week's episode. It's for your ears only, the interview segment. Who joined us in the cubbyhole this week, Phil? Thanks, Martin. So this week we were delighted to be joined by Robbie Sims, who's a scriptwriter, voiceover artist, and the author of Quantum of Silliness, which takes a, a more light-hearted look at the world of James Bond. Of course, Robbie is a great James Bond fan himself, and he's also really big on Twitter as well. So if you do get the chance, do follow his uh, Twitter page, at uh, the Tchaikovsky. But without further ado, here is Robbie uh, to talk about his interest in James Bond. I'm now aiming precisely at your groin. So speak or forever hold your peace. Thank you so much for joining us, Robbie. So basically, we wanted to chat about quantum silliness and obviously where your your kind of love affair of Bond started. Obviously, I know in the book that you mentioned that kind of Live and Let Die was was the first Bond film that you saw. Was it kind of a family mm. introduction? Was it kind of a, your, your dad or a member of the family that got you into Bond? Or was it just something that was always kind of of interest? Well, I remember watching them very young, like Live and Let Die I saw when I was about five or six. And that was probably my brother's influence. I've got a, an older brother who's seven years older than me. So he would sit me down and show me all sorts of inappropriate stuff, including Jaws when I was four. Which I don't think is uh, really acceptable. Anyway, I had a fear of actually brushing my teeth after watching Jaws in case the shark came out of the tap. Anyway, um, Live and Let Die. Yeah, I must have seen that when I was five or six. And um Maybe we had uh, a VHS recorded from the TV. So I ended up watching that one quite a lot. Through that, I kind of got into the rest. Um, and it's kind of followed me throughout my life. Every, every group of friends I've had, whether it's uh, uni friends or school friends, or even now, I've kind of got, got into the routine of watching them all with different groups of people, which is great because you see them through different eyes and you get to appreciate things you didn't know before. I only got deep into the geekery as an adult. Uh, uh, once I realised I had nothing else to do with my time, uh, I kind of started a Twitter account and really got into it. And through that, the the book Quantum of Silliness kind of uh, presented itself. Genuinely, it's one of the funniest books I've ever read. It was just so wonderful to read something that was, that was clearly from a, a fellow Bond fan. Where did this kind of the inspiration for the book come from? Was it just always that love affair of the Bond films and you wanted to kind of to put your own spin on on what you'd seen before? Was it just you wanted to have a kind of satirical absurdities of the Bond franchise that we kind of all love as fans? Yeah, well, I, there's a lot of good, uh, great books out there for uh, Bond Bibles, if you like, uh, written by lots of different people. And there wasn't really one that was purely focusing on the daftness of it all. And I think that, Bond, we can look at the, the thriller aspects, the Fleming aspects. The thing that appeals to me is the fact that it's quite absurd, especially the Roger era. And I kind of thought that that wasn't really being celebrated enough. So, I mean, the book, the book itself as an idea wasn't even my idea. I was just on Twitter amusing myself and hopefully amusing 
like the 12 followers I had at the time. And I was just fortunate that a guy who worked in a publishing company followed me and then got in touch and said, would you like to write a book? So, I mean, I, I say a book, it's a collection of either tweets or stupid jokes that I've thought about and a few longer form articles. I go into why die another day, why it's quite so preposterous. And there's uh, articles about what quips would Roger Moore be delivering if he was starring in License to Kill, etc. It's designed to be really a, a book to read on the toilet or something or flick through and amuse yourself as you're passing solids. But uh, hopefully if you can get anything more out of it, then that's great. <laughs> I was wondering, the, you must have cut down the Die Another Day section. That could be a whole massive book in itself, all the, the logical errors of Die Another Day. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I think I narrowed it down to like 10 bullet points, no pun intended. But uh, I think, yeah, I could write a whole full, fully formed book about why Die Another Day is quite so compellingly bad. <laughs> uh, were there any like particular favourite sections of yours? I think my favourite section was probably uh, Q's Haikus. I felt like your love of, have you always had a love of language as well as, as well as Bond? I, I guess so. Yes. Uh, I mean, in my, in my day job, I'm a script writer. So um, yeah, that the, these, these things don't come too torturously to me, but uh, the haikus in particular were quite fun to write because you're, you're narrowed down to a very strict rule of number of syllables per line. It's nice to just have free reign to write whatever you want and then just hope that uh it's good enough to be published in a book <laughs> which most of it was was there any sort of elements that you wanted to add in for the characters that you thought you could sort of link puns back to or was it just a case that you had a clear set of chapters in your mind that you wanted to have in and that that sort of created the framework for the, for the book mm. itself um no it was more of a sort of a potpourri of, of different ideas and they just sort of sprinkled them in wherever I saw fit um, I did have an idea to do a quite a long, self-indulgent, pretend interview with Kimberly Jones, who's the pilot of the uh, Iceberg Submarine at the beginning of A View to a Kill. So I had this whole kind of fake interview where I sat her down as, as the character, not the actress, uh, talking about what exactly her job was, what it smelt like in that submarine, uh, how, how Roger, how James was. So I wrote all this down and then I thought, actually, I'm not sure if I have the intellectual property to uh, start putting words into this character's mouth. I'm basically basically using an Eon character here for my own benefit. So that had to go. But most of the stuff I did write ended up in the book. Uh, yeah, there wasn't much quality control. You are really popular on Twitter as well and, and obviously social media. Do you think that social media has been an outlet for Bond fans this year, particularly with the coronavirus pandemic and with No Time to Die being delayed. Do you think that it's been helpful to have that in the background for us all to be able to sort of offload some of our frustrations or, you know, some of our ideas? I, I think in this this last year, I've noticed that the, the Bond community on Twitter has really sort of stepped its pussy up, as an as a unintended pun for you, um, because they've yeah, there's been a lot of people joining and uh, sort of creating their own memes for Bond. Um, I feel like it's quite a nice place to be and sort of amuse yourself while we're waiting for this interminable release for No Time to Die. Um, it is, it has been quite useful for me to uh, vent on, on Twitter, at least, and uh, see that there's other people out there who are feeling the same. And you also mentioned, Robbie, that you're a screenwriter. Uh, would you relish the opportunity of working on a Bond film? What kind of direction would you take it? <laughs> uh, if if I could pitch Octopussy 2, then possibly. Um, no, I, I, I like being a fan. And I think as soon as you uh, have the responsibility of actually being a part of something like that, the 
the joy might might escape you. I I, I kind of like I, I like being an armchair fan and uh, not that they'd ever ask me to. I don't, I'm not Phoebe Waller Bridge. They're not going to ask me to write a Bond script off the back of Quantum of Silliness. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm very happy to just be an armchair critic on these films. And uh, I don't know the, the responsibility of having to actually be involved in a film, a franchise like that would probably do me in. I, I don't think I could handle that kind of stress. Yeah, no, I, I think I'd say exactly the same. As an armchair fan, though, what, what do you sort of, because this will be Daniel Craig's last film as Bond, presumably, finally, when it does come out. Mm. What do you, what would, what direction would you like to see them go in, sort of with whoever the new actor is? What kind of tone as a fan do you think it probably needs at the moment? I have my own thoughts, but it'd be interesting to see what mm. you reckon to it. Um, good question. I think the temptation will be to reboot and I hope they don't do that because every time they cast a new Bond they'll be wanting to do an origin story or sort of showing how this Bond came to be 007 and that could get tedious quite quickly um also it depends on who they cast you know if, they, if they're casting a, a, a serious thespian maybe you do want to go that and delve into his backstory but I personally would rather just have some standalone adventures the last time this really happened was in the, the Brosnan era, of course, because Daniel Craig's have all been somehow retroactively tied together in a slightly clumsy way. We'll see how it how it all finalises itself. But unless you're going to set out at the beginning to do a definite trilogy with cliffhangers or whatever, I think it's best just to do a standalone adventure that you can sit down and watch with your family on a bank holiday afternoon without having to know what happened in the last one or what's going to happen in the next one. And I hope they get back to doing that. That's why I, I quite like tomorrow never dies because it feels like it was one of the last films where it was just a cookie cutter here's a bond adventure we're going to have this scene we're going to have that scene and it all kind of you know it flowed in the way that you expect a bond film to since then they've always tried to sort of mix the cocktail up a bit which is fine you, you don't want things to go stale but i'd actually quite appreciate just a a, a bog standard hey bond here's your miss mission go off and uh, do it and maybe snog a girl in a boat at the end that would be my my preference and do you think that kind of the, the bomb films in the Craig have perhaps become a little bit too serious? Would you would you want to see them go back to more of a kind of Roger Moore-esque uh, mannerisms or, you know, one-liners that he was always so great at doing? I would, yeah. I'm interested to see what Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to do with No Time to Die because presumably she has been brought in to add some some comedy. But how how do you fit that into Craig's universe? Because Craig's a good actor and he can do humour, but uh, I don't know if he could particularly pull off a bad one-liner we saw that uh, Dalton struggled in that department a bit and it was better if you had our incidental characters around him being the silly ones so yeah I, I don't know Daniel Craig I, I feel like his films are a bit too dark especially for getting new fans on board uh, one of the ones I think Bond has, has such longevity is that whatever era you kind of got into it they were they were appropriate they were family films and you could watch them as kids and just enjoy the spectacle I really enjoyed in uh, Casino Royale, which doesn't have many jokes in it at all. I really enjoyed the fact that um, Eva Green's character had the the code name of Stephanie Broadchest. So that was a nice nod to the Roger era and the kind of ridiculous names that a Bond girl would have. But they they managed to put it into the script in a totally realistic way by just having it as a sort of throwaway joke. That, I get the impression, although no, no Time to Die is to be Phoebe Waller-Bridge influenced, I still get the impression it's going to be a pretty full-on sort of serious dark affair. And we've often kind of talked in the podcast about sort of our kind of dream spin-offs from the James Bond series. And I know that in Quantum of Silliness you also mentioned that there's sort of 
certain spin-offs that, that never were. Do, do you kind of think that that's a missed opportunity from the Bond franchise, that maybe we should have had spin-offs of uh, certain characters? I, I, I'm going to say no, just because we've already got 24 films and I think there's enough of a body of work there to uh, be amusing ourselves with. I think anything that was like a spin-off like that would end up being a bit of a curio and it would be, I don't know, it's like, what do, do you include that in the canon? Oh, it would be canon, but do you include it in the series of films? Um, they were, there was rumours they, or I think they actually did script a whole uh, Jinx spin-off, didn't they, after Die Another Day, which in retrospect would have been terrible, especially if it was the same writers. Spin-offs are all very well and good in theory, but they're a very difficult thing to pull off because what do you do? Do you replicate the entire tone of a Bond film and just do that with different characters? Or do you try and explore a completely different avenue of storytelling, which is probably the way I would go? But then have you strayed too far from what people like about the Bond formula, you know? So yeah, I've, I've never really had an urge, although I write in my book about, you know, wouldn't it be great if um, the Thai river urchin that... Um, Bond pushes off his boat in The Man with the Golden Gun. It'd be great if he came back 30 years later and had his own revenge thriller um, called The Elephant Never Forgets. But I think that's best left in my imagination. To be honest, I would go and watch that. I'd, I'd, I'd really enjoy that. I think. So <laughs> maybe that's an untapped resource that we should uh, should look at in the future. But again, we, we've again we as huge Bond fans, we sort of named our, our podcast in honour almost of Roger Moore. And you and you book as well you mentioned that obviously kind of films like a view to a killer are up there as some of your favorites do you think that roger moore had probably the greatest impact of all the bond actors was he certainly your favorite of them all or or do you think that it, it helped to progress the franchise i love roger and i don't know if i would have really become a fan without him um i always found sean as a kid i always found sean slightly scary which is the point he's supposed to be scary as a killer but um with Roger, especially in the last two, his, his I like to call Octopussy and W to a Kill his imperial phase because he's so relaxed into the role by then. He kind of glides through every scene as if everything's almost beneath him. And that's so perfect because it is, he, he's he's letting you in on the joke. Yeah, I buy it. I, I buy that he's, um, <laughs> he's somehow going to save the world dressed as a clown or a gorilla. It works. This segues nicely into our next question, which was, uh, like, we're on the same page with the Die Another Day, generally considered a bad film. Uh, but what would you, con is there any ones that the Bond community would consider quite bad that you quite enjoy? Uh, I guess we know mm. the answer based on what you just said there. Or, or maybe, <laughs> maybe vice versa. Is there any ones that are considered really good that perhaps you're not so hot on? Well, uh, just before Christmas um, or over Christmas, there was a Twitter, a very big Twitter poll done by Better Make That Two, which basically just got as many tw Twitter fans to uh, submit their rankings in. So it was interesting to see how mine compared to the, the, the general public. Uh, I think the one I'm, I'm most down on is The World Is Not Enough, uh, whereas some people are quite quite championing that one. I just, it doesn't, doesn't push my buttons, I'm afraid. It's quite uh, dull, dare I say. Um, still has its moments, of course. Whereas, as I said, A View to a Kill, lots of the Roger ones, very high up for me. License to Kill, I'm a big fan of, and I always thought I was in a minority there, but it turns out that uh, License to Kill is really being sort of reassessed these days, and it's actually got a, a really good fan base, which is lovely to see. Yeah, I was going to say, because we're, well, we're part of those fans that do adore the kind of Timothy Dalton era. Do you, do you think that he's quite underrated in terms of what he was able to produce, considering that he kind of only had two films to be able to put his mark on the franchise? Do you think he should have had more 
time to be able to to produce more films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they say that it takes three films for you to really settle into the role, and that's why Goldfinger and The Spy Who Loved Me sort of really do hit home. But um, Tim never got that opportunity, and I think with a third one, yeah, he might have done. I, I understand why it didn't resonate with audiences at the time. They probably weren't quite ready after Roger. It was so much of a gear change. But yeah, it's a shame. I think Tim definitely had more in him. I just don't think the audience were really uh, up for it at the time. You've touched on this uh, a little bit before, um, but for you, what, what are the sort of main reasons that you can think of that the series has endured quite as long as it has? I mean, this is essentially a 60s franchise. It was parodied, you know, to, to the hilt even at the time. And yet now, 50 and more years later, nearly 60 years later, it's as popular as it's ever been. I mean, Skyfall and Spectre were massive UK and worldwide box office hits. What do you think are the main reasons for that? What do you think it is that keeps people coming back to Bond? Good question. Um, I think it's, they are family films, and especially in Britain, it's sort of a tradition. Even if you're not a Bond fan, you'll go and see a Bond film because it's kind of what people do. <laughs> you don't want to feel like you're missing out. And at least for the main body of films, I think if you get into them as a kid, you can be a lifelong fan. It's quite difficult to introduce an adult to say Moonraker. They're going to be like, well, this is, this is really strange. Please stop. My concern is, are the Daniel Craig ones getting a new generation of fans involved? Maybe they are. On Twitter, it seems like there's a lot of young Bond fans. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's got a longevity just because by now it's almost part of the cultural fabric. That makes me sound like a pretentious asshole, doesn't it? But yeah, they're, they're very much woven into, sewn into whatever makes British cinema a thing. And uh, whatever happens, Bond will return, I think, uh, in some form it might not be a the way that we're all used to but it'll carry on absolutely it's uh it's a cash cow that's not stopped producing milk yet so, so robbie as someone who who is now fully immersed in making jokes about the bond series uh, in in the actual films themselves what are the gags or the one-liners that really stand out to you as being just your absolute favorites you know that either because they're just a huge belly laugh or because the way that they were worked into the film was just so brilliant. <laughs> well, sometimes it's not even the sort of uh, obvious one-liners that really do it for me. But I love, in The Spy Who Loved Me, he's in a hotel on Sardinia, I think. And uh, the receptionist comes to his hotel room. He answers the door and she's wearing quite a sort of low-cut dress. But, you know, that's, that's what you'd expect. Uh, and she says something like, I have a message for you. And then Roger just says, well, I think you've just delivered it which isn't really a joke. Well, it is a joke, but it's, it's not a pun and it's not like a one-liner, but for some reason, his suaveness and his ability to sort of, you know, say exactly the most charming thing he can at any opportunity, uh, I find very fun. Um, in terms of actual one-liners, it's a good question. I, I mean, th there's some really bad ones in Bioris only. What does he say? Uh, Blofeld says, um, I trust you had a pleasant fright when, <laughs> when uh, Bond's hanging off the helicopter, which is quite bad. And then Bond later says, um, when he's in Q's lab and they're testing out an umbrella, he says, stinging in the rain. I mean, these, these are all things I would hesitate to put in a tweet. These are not, <laughs> these are not sophisticated puns. So he didn't always get it right. But um, yeah, there's certainly lots of, of fun moments in uh, a lot of the later Roger ones. I think, as I remember, with the stinging in the rain line, Q even says to him right afterwards, that's not funny, 007. There's not even a, a <laughs> sense of Q being flustered or frustrated with his antics. He's just straight down saying, that's not even funny. So, yeah, I think <laughs> I'd agree with you He's calling it like that. it is, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, to pick up on something you said, I'm I'm always a little bit down on the Tom Mankiewicz scripted uh, Bonds, the the Diamonds Are Forever, through to Man with the Golden Gun, just because I think they get a bit too silly and and they're a little too self parodic. And uh, when you get Christopher Wood in the Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, I feel like the humour is balanced to a much better degree with the spectacle and the action of the films. And um, where do you kind of stand on those earlier Mankiewicz ones? Because Martin's a big fan of them, and I'm always a little bit sort of we always have a little bit of a set too. Uh, and then when we talked to Alan a few weeks ago, he said they were all his favourites. So so I'm sort of increasingly thinking, am I am I kind of just wrong about them? Where do you stand on them? Um, I might side with Martin on this one. I I think that uh, Tom. His his scripts could be quite problematic, or seen as quite problematic these days. But Diamonds Are Forever might not be a good film overall, but the script does have some good zingers in it. And the same with Living Let Die Man with the Golden Gun. They've they've got good lines. There's something about the films overall which maybe might be seen as a bit grotty by some people nowadays. But um, the script itself is good. Yeah, I, and I agree with what you're saying about Christopher Wood. I think um, yeah, he managed to get the he managed to balance the tone a bit better, particularly Moonraker giving the best lines to Drax. I think Drax has some of the best villain monologues of the, the whole franchise. So he was really good at doing that. Um, Tom Mankiewicz was definitely good at the, the gags. I didn't, I didn't know there was a pool down there, etc. This is all great stuff, but uh, maybe in terms of plotting and non-joke dialogue, he kind of wasn't quite so on it, yeah. Grotty but good is a, is a nice summary of those <laughs> films. Yeah, I do agree that the kind of Roger Moore doing those lines, he does it with a charm that somehow manages to divert away from the sleaziness. And I guess that, that would be the yeah. trouble nowadays with Daniel Craig or whoever his successor is. Even if you put those good puns and good good lines in, it might be, I guess it'd be difficult to sway the audience and, and bring them around to that style. Yeah, yeah. and like you say, uh, Craig doesn't really get many one-liners. Uh, Inspector, I'm trying to think if he actually does anything funny. <laughs> the big, the, the only joke I can think of, Inspector, is given to Q when he says, um, I expected you to bring that Aston Martin back in one piece, not bring back one piece, which is quite a good line. So I think they're, they're getting around the fact that they, can, they don't have to give the humour to Bond necessarily. They can give it to the supporting characters and get the jokes in that way. Uh, and Q is quite a good conduit, I suppose. Um, I, I think the Marvel movies, which I'm, I, I watch, I'm not a huge fan of, but uh, I definitely have seen most of them. They, they're really good at getting humour in in some unexpected ways, whether it's a sight gag or just some sort of clever editing. So I think Bond could maybe learn a thing or two from Marvel in terms of how you get some real crowd-pleasing comedy into, the, into what could be quite a serious film. It's definitely wisecracking with Marvel, isn't it? As opposed to just sort of overt mm. punning. Um, what have you got planned in the, the future, Robbie? You've sort of talked about having a few more ideas for, for future sort of Bond nostalgia, future Bond projects. Do, do you know roughly what you might go for? Um, no, is the short, short answer. Um, what I'd follow up Quantum of Silliness with, I don't know. I don't know. There's a, there's a throwaway joke at the end of the book where I say that the sequel is going to be called You Only Laugh Twice, which to, could still happen. But um, I have a feeling I've got something more academic in me, maybe, to get out. I've just actually had a thought of one that you could perhaps pitch as a, uh, maybe a spin-off book from The View to a Kill, The Misadventures of Inspector Aubergine, maybe a uh, one for the future. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's... <laughs> I can see a sort of Pink Panther crossover there where there's just lots of really bad French misunderstandings. Uh, yeah, Monsieur Aubergine, he, he definitely deserves his own spin-off, you're right. <laughs> I'm pleased you approve, since you're paying the bill. <laughs> Cheers. Sante, Monsieur Aubergine.
So that was Robbie Sims. As Phil mentioned, it was great to spend time with a fellow Bond fanatic. And uh, while I perhaps don't share his love of A View to a Kill, uh, I did like his description of uh, Octopussy and, and A View to a Kill as being part of Roger Moore's imperial phase. I thought that was such an accurate description. Uh, Sir Roger inhabiting the character of Bond so well and kind of gliding effortlessly through all of the uh, the scenes uh, so yeah wonderful to have Robbie on the show and of course he continues to entertain Bond fans over on Twitter yeah I love that comment about the imperial phase as well it, it just conjures it up so well doesn't it you know almost suggests Roger Moore is himself a big steam engine like some of those we see in Octopus he just kind of chundering along through these films what, what was also interesting and this comes up pretty much every time we talk to a fellow Bond fan is, is I think so many fans really want the Bond series after Daniel Craig to rediscover a bit of its Roger Moreness, don't they they want it to be funnier and a bit sillier and a bit more daft I mean Daniel Craig has been brilliant in the role and I think his films have more often than not been excellent but you do sort of sense they can't carry on being so uber serious and you know psychologically realistic they do need to shift back to a more humorous interpretation of the character yeah i think it's going to depend on who they bring in next i think that'll be the big question but yeah i'd certainly like to see a little bit more uh, maybe tongue-in-cheek moments well if it is going to be tom hardy as rumored you'd imagine he'd want to go down that route i mean that is a very funny actor on his day did you see Tom Hardy in Legend when he played both Cray twins? Because there was sort of because he played, I think, Reggie Cray very straight down the line and very dapper. And everyone thought that was kind of his Bond audition. And then weirdly for the other brother, Ronnie, which is the one he wanted to play anyway, he sort of does it as a weird cross between Matt Lucas and Mark Lamar, doesn't he? A shootout is a shootout. Maybe he could be the first actor who plays Bond and he also plays the villain, just wearing a different wig. Oh, I would love to see that. That'd be phenomenal. But then a few films down the line, we find out that they're identical twins, which explains the similarity. He is going to play Bond and Blofeld going forward, and so it fully ties up the whole half-brother plot thing. You see, I want him to bring back the Charles Grey-esque Blofeld, where it's full-on wig and, you know, full-on drag acts. Well, 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 look what the cat dragged in. You must forgive his rather tedious disguise, Miss Case. So it's on to our 007 best segment where we discuss our seven favourite in an any given Bond category. And this week it's going to be the 007 best allies of the franchise. So who do we think provides the best support for Bond in his missions? Well, let's find out, starting with... Number seven. It's Leonid Pushkin, as played by John Rhys Davies in The Living Daylights. I mean, this is an incredibly memorable character. He's weirdly not in the film much, but he has so much charisma and so much physical presence and does a really great mini arc going from quite fearsome and frightening and this terrifying new head of the KGB, of course. He's taken over from Walter Cattell's General Gogol. And yet by the end of it, he is, of course, an ally of Bond. And we've seen the more cuddly side of him taking that nice bunch of flowers to his missus, only for Dalton to absolutely ruin that romantic night in. But yeah, Reese Davies really fleshes out this character brilliantly in a very short space of time. Yeah, I, I love Pushkin. I think that um, he's a very bombastic sort of, you know, he, not in your face, but he's, he's very sort of extroverted and he's very much, you know, he's, he comes to his aid when he needs him most really because of the fact that obviously at the end, when Bond always gets shot, Pushkin's men help to end Whittaker's reign of terror effectively. So it's a really great sort of finale to that film. And I think that Pushkin is a, a great ally to Bond's, you know, demands. Yeah, it is interesting that we get his girlfriend in the in the scenes as well, because we of course we see Bond 
being romantic or maybe not so romantic in some of his love scenes. Uh, so it's really interesting that we get that kind of character. We see his gentle side as he as he opens the door with the whatever it is, the little picnic basket that he's brought into the hotel room. And then, of course, the, the tone rather swiftly changes. Be interesting to see M uh, in, in a similar kind of uh, situation. <laughs> I sort of don't think Robert Brown's M would have been in that situation in a hurry. There's also a little moment of ceremony just outside the door, isn't there, when his, his guard sort of hands him, I think, the uh, the flowers and then the, the whatever else he's got. And he's just making sure he's fully in the part and presentable as this romantic hero. Number six. So on to number six, we have Draco from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. He kind of, on many occasions, assists Bond to try and defeat Blofeld and Spectre, particularly towards the end of Peace Gloria, where obviously the, the huge fight sequence takes place and obviously Draco is there to both rescue his daughter in unorthodox fashion, but um, obviously helps Bond to try and defeat Blofeld in that scenario. Yeah, I do love Draco. Another interesting character in the sense that he's part of the underworld a great character to kind of support Bond and a great interesting dynamic of course we've never had that fatherly figure to the characters and he does kind of become a fatherly figure to uh, to Bond in a way. Yeah I mean Fleming as an author when he writes the character originally he's quite inspired by Hemingway and uh, there is a touch of that kind of macho Hemingway-esque hero to Draco isn't there the fact that he has this past as a a bandit sort of fighting for freedom in the hills uh, you know he, he's very big on bullfighting and we see him at a sort of matador event on his birthday but he's he's a criminal but he's a criminal of honor and that contrasts very specifically to Blofeld in Honor Majesties and of course yeah the fact that he's ultimately a big softy and his daughter is his world but he is this sort of very tender father figure when he wants to be when he's not like paying men a million dollars to marry her or punching her in the face or saying what she needs is a man to dominate her yeah, there are a few sort of problematic moments from Draco, but on the whole, I think that he's uh, he's very supportive of Bond, and obviously, you know, he kind of sees Bond as the son he never had, almost in a, in a parallel universe. If, if Tracy had lived, they would have Bond probably would have left the Secret Service and would have gone on to live happily ever after in in a Draco mansion somewhere. So, do you remember back when we were talking about License to Kill in our first series and we sort of mused upon what Felix Leiter's stag do would have been? Well, presumably Bond's also had a stag do before the wedding to Tracy. We just haven't seen it between that cut of him cuddling that St Bernard and then putting the ring on the finger. But what would that have been like? And would Draco therefore have been on it? Like, who was Bond's best man? You know, and what was his stag like? Did, did they invite Q&M? Is Felix Leiter somewhere? If so, which Felix is it? You know, it's probably at this stage, because it's been a while since Rick Van Nutter, it might even be Diamonds Are Forever Felix Leiter on the stag. I know I booked the tickets for this stag do, but I just can't find them, James. I know there's a stripper hidden somewhere around here, but I just can't find her, James. I'd like to think the dog got invited as well. <laughs> yeah, Bond, uh, George Lazenby just turns up with this big St. Bernard. Well, I owe my bloody life to this St. Bernard. I couldn't leave him at home on a stag, mate, geezer. Number five. So in at number five, we have Rene Mathis, who appears in Casino Royale and the sequel to that film, Quantum of Solace. So this character, I really like Rene Mathis. He's a really warm character, isn't he? And I like what they did with uh, with Bond kind of thinking he's the traitor and it's Vesper all along. So I, I do like how they handle his character in Casino Royale. Uh, it's just a pity that uh, he's treated so poorly by Bond as well in, <laughs> at his death in Quantum of Solace. So yeah, I feel like they could have done a little bit more with Mathis. Maybe he would have been a bit higher on the list if he'd have played a bit more of a role. 
Yeah, and I love that he's not really a spy so much as this retired, very well-connected gentleman of leisure. I mean, you know, you, you sort of sense in Montenegro, how busy could he possibly have been before Bond shows up and this poker game goes in? And yet he's extremely quick to act and well-connected. Then again in Quantum, they immediately arrive to this South American hotel and he's, he's making beelines to the chief of police there. And so it's, it's great just how many fingers in how many pies he's got there. And yet it's such a shame he's not used more in Quantum. He's one of the few very good things in that film. And certainly that scene on the plane when they're flying over and Bond's absolutely soused. You sense that they could have really used that character to sort of help Bond and to dig deeper into the psychology and what's going on with the character and had it as a real sort of study between the two of them. And, and it's such a shame he's not given the time to do that. I just think he's so cool. He's just, you know, he's, he, he can almost match Bond in the coolness stakes. He's he's kind of there just enjoying his his time and, you know, he's, he's enjoying his moment in the sun helping Bond. Particularly in Casino Royale where he's, you know, he's, he's pretty much partying after the time. He's, you know, he's at the casino just having drinks with Vesper and it's almost like it's a, a hobby for him to have to alter the chief's plans and, and kind of sabotage him along the way. So it's a great little partnership that they do. Again, not as not as well mapped out in Quantum of Solace, of course. We've, we've mentioned before the fact that that film kind of fails to deliver the payoff that you'd expect, you know, when you consider just how much emotion is in the final scenes with René Mathis. Yeah, the dialogue that Bond and Mathis share on his death, I, I think, annoys many Bond fans uh, because it gives fuel to the uh, the codename theory that Bond is just a code name because uh, because Mathis is not his real name. So it's a shame they could have handled the death a bit better as well, rather than Bond just kind of throwing him a, in a skip. Yeah, you also wonder what other really quiet sports um, Mathis could have given us some very obvious commentary of, don't you? Sort of if he was doing the snooker one night, he has to put 15 reds and 15 blacks to score a maximum break. Or just kind of doing a, an even simpler card game, like blackjack. He needs to get as close as possible to 21 without going over it. I thought darts would be quite good for him as well. He needs to hit a double top to check out on 40. And at number four on the list, it's Hagrid himself, Valentin Zukovsky, played by Robbie Coltrane. Uh, there's such great chemistry between the two actors, uh, Coltrane and then Pierce Brosnan as Bond, isn't there? You, you really do sense, again, like with what Dalton and John Rhys-Davies did in Living Daylights, there's a real lived history to these characters. You sense that way before this film even happened, for years, maybe decades, they've known each other, and it just gives a great inner life to that relationship. You sense that these aren't just two people meeting in the course of a mission. There's a real history that they bring to bear on it. And it's just because those actors spark so well off one another, I feel. Yeah, I, I agree, Adam. I think it's one of the great sort of, you know, allies of the entire franchise. And there's so much that happens in, in that opening introduction where Bond goes to see Zukovsky and also Jack Wade has helped him to set up the meeting. And you get just so many great little moments of comedy. The, the part where Minnie Driver is singing on the stage. And so the bit where obviously the, the curtain draws across and uh, Valentin Zakowski's got the gun against his head. And there's no fear. There's no sort of sense of his life's at risk. He just, go, he just sort of does that really dry delivery that Robbie Coltrane seems so brilliant at. Yeah, I'd go along with uh, what both of you have said about uh, about this character. Excellent by Coltrane. And uh, I do like the fact that we've got that backstory with him and Bond. Bond is the one who has given him the limp. And then eventually that is what saves Bond's life with his uh, hidden gun inside the, uh, the walking stick. So uh, really lovely. It'd be nice to see that little side adventure, wouldn't it? What happened that uh, led Bond to shoot him in the first place? 
Yeah, I love the walking stick gun as well. I do wonder if he's just perennially jealous of Bond, and so that whole walking stick thing was he wanted his own Q toy. But, you know, the best thing he could come up with was just sort of hollow out a walking stick, put a big barrel down it, and, and yeah, that's a gun. It's a walking stick gun. And Q's just sort of heard about this and thought, yeah, that never left the blackboard in my workshop, mate. Number three. Okay, so in at number three, we have Tiger Tanaka from You Only Live Twice. Um, of course, with his mix of martial arts and a kind of ninja school that he brings Bond to, it's kind of a new world for Bond. And it's one where kind of Tiger Tanaka, again, takes him on as, as almost his own son. We put him quite high, obviously, with third place. I think, do you think he's a deserving kind of top three character? Certainly, Phil, yeah, I'd say we mentioned Pushkin is basically the Russian M, and this is basically the Japanese M. Um, and I do like that we get a, a sense of his lifestyle and the way that he runs things in Japan and how he kind of has to teach Bond about these things. I love the the underground railway that he has, which is uh, an interesting way of, uh, of getting around the place. And the fact that he can summon those helicopters with the, uh, the giant magnets, just a really, imp- I'd love to work for Tiger Taneka. Yeah, you sense that if Bond ever took over M's job, this is probably how he'd do things. He'd be incredibly cultured and sophisticated. He'd be living the high life with his private bathhouse and private subway trains, but also be the man of action he needs to be. And of course, Tiger is full deep in the operation and he's leading the charge against Blofeld and his volcano at the end. Uh, I also love how Tiger's allowed to chastise Bond and indeed MI6 for their methods, isn't he? We talked a bit about this when we chatted You Only Live Twice. The fact that he sort of sneers at little Nelly, oh, don't go up in a toy helicopter Mr. Bond, let me get one of my good ones. And his womanizing as well. I was told never follow strange women to any strange place, but you'll follow any woman to anywhere. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that Tiger Tanaka, he's probably one of the few people on Earth who has the same level of resources as, you know, MI6 and Q Branch with all the gizmos and gadgets and the ninja school that he's able to finance. And it's it's quite astonishing that he's built up this empire almost, this, you know, this group of people that are that are willing to help him and and you know and obviously he's got these beautiful agents who are also there to help him and bond throughout the mission i think the other thing about tanaka is um and also a couple of the other early connery films they're not always the most culturally sensitive in their depictions of diverse characters but at the very least they do put strong-willed interesting multi-layered diverse characters in key ally positions thinking of you know tanaka being japanese of quarrel in dr no of course being black and, and from the caribbean kevin bay of course has romani gypsy heritage obviously those early films do have their issues when they go into other cultures but it is interesting that those key roles are at least you know played relatively seriously and they're not really treated with overt racism Number two. So in at number two, just missing out on the top spot is Milos Colombo from For Your Eyes Only, the dove himself. We've mentioned many of the characters have excellent actors and none more so than Topol. Brilliant footballer, of course, as Jim Dowdle told us, but <laughs> excellent in the film as well. I think it's interesting the setup that we get in the film. Christatos is set up as the uh, the ally to Bond, uh, but it's fairly easy. I mean, I think even watching this on as a child, I knew that Christatos was was actually the baddie, and uh, Columbo was going to be the eventual ally. Um, but I really like the the raid of the opium warehouse in particular. 
I think that's a really underrated action scene in the Bond franchise. The character of Columbo really welcomes Bond with open arms, doesn't he, into his team. And Bond is kind of commending his, uh, his subordinates to do stuff. So I do like that initial, the immediate connection that the characters get. Um, and of course, Columbo is the one who takes the final revenge in the final act of the, of the film. So yeah, really, really good character and uh, really deserving of uh, second place, I think. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think that warehouse raid scene is one of, you know, the very best of the entire franchise, simply because of the fact that it shows, you know, partly that Bond and Columbo are now allies, and also the fact that Columbo can use his own initiative and his own ingenuity, where he, he throws the, the nutshells on the floor, and that's how he knows that the henchmen are moving closer to him, and then obviously he, they can get the upper hand. But also, I think there is a great sort of fondness between the two characters, because we see at the end where... Columbo is with Melina Havelock and the rest of his group and, and you see Bond having to climb up that sheer rock face and as an audience we are you know it's quite a terrifying stunt sequence but also it's you know it's quite frightening for the characters as well you know you get the sense that Columbo is really afraid for Bond because of what he's got to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best ally characters, they always seem to embody and be a conduit for the culture that we have found ourselves in and that Bond is kind of being immersed in in the film. Uh, and, and he feels very much of the Greek culture, doesn't it? You know, quoting Thrasos, Guts, and, you know, the, the bravura and the sense that he is a man of, who enjoys the pleasures and the finer things in life. He just really brings that to the party, does Topol, as well as the sort of bombastic presence and the musical lilt to his delivery that you'd expect of a great Broadway musical act. Uh, but also he just perfectly suits the tone of the film doesn't he the tone of for your eyes only that sort of autumnal nature the fact that these characters have all been around the block a bit they're getting older and that perhaps this is a later adventure a sort of last hurrah for some of them and yet he's also incredibly funny and charming just like roger moore's bond is you know the fact that in the scene you talk about phil with the cable car up to the the monastery he just sort of punches out the guard at the end doesn't he for good measure they've tied him up to keep him quiet and then Columbo just decides nah I'm just going to punch you in the face and deal with you he also of course becomes BB Doll's sponsor at the end so do we think he he went on to have a great uh, successful career as a figure skating coach maybe that's a missed opportunity for the franchise it's the adventures of Columbo and uh, BB Doll on their ice skating journey that is the spin-off that no one wants to see particularly since you can sort of sense Columbo might not have been as resistant to her as a, her advances as Bond is in the film. I don't think he'd have been buying her that ice cream as a consolation. Seeing his nuts. Are you, are you suggesting BB Doll has a good chew on his pistachios? Number one. And finally, coming in at number one, uh, it's not Albert Finney as King Cade. I can't quite believe you two didn't vote for him. He's my number one of all time. But our number one is, of course... Ali Kerimbey, played by Pedro Armendariz in From Russia With Love. I mean, this character just sets the template for the best Bond allies, doesn't he? Basically, they are James Bond himself, but kind of in 20 years' time, you know, being later in their careers and in a position to sort of look back with a bit more of a relaxed and nuanced view on everything and kind of help this younger agent who they become quite paternal towards, I guess, through his operation. Uh, but the sheer charisma he brings to this role is second to none, isn't it? Yeah, I love Karen Bass. I think that he kind of, he has the same level of style as someone like Rennie Mathis. He has the ingenuity and the intuitive nature of being able to judge people like Columbo and people like that. It's, it's just, it's kind of that amalgamation of all the characters that we're going to see as allies over the coming films, over the coming decades. 
And it's kind of Kerim Bay is almost the blueprint for that, you know, with the way that he is, his resourcefulness and, you know, the fact that it's almost, again, another family business with all his sons working for him. And, and again, you get the sense that he has quite a few criminal connections, but he understands the difference between right and wrong and obviously what Bond is trying to do. Yeah, I think this character is summed up best by the, the photo or the still from the movie of when they're at the gypsy camp and Karen Bay's just looking across, very jovial, very happy look on his face across at Connery's Bond. I think that really sums up the character really well, a little sparkle in his eye. And I think he's, uh, yeah, he's kind of secure in his own world, as you mentioned, Phil, the, uh, the family connections he's got. Uh, so he's kind of as secure as you can be in an insecure environment that he, that he works in. And the fact that he's, there is some humour to him as well when he's in the train cabin and he mentions that he's had a long and interesting life. Would you like to hear about it? <laughs> Lovely line. And I mean, of course, I'm not one to criticise from Russia with Love, uh, but maybe the film might have been even better if we'd have seen Red Grant killing Karen Bay real we would have had even more anger towards that character before the the final fist fight it would have felt very brutal seeing that scene wouldn't it i mean you know perhaps a step too far but it would have been very interesting i do like to feel that in that tussle maybe kerim does actually land a parting blow on grant uh, who then has to hide it sort of throughout the rest of um you know the sequence it would have been interesting to think oh kerim just lands a quick cut on his arm which he has to quickly bandage Grant, and that this is the thing that ultimately helps Bond beat him later on, the fact that Kerim has crucially weakened him and given him an Achilles heel. That would have been quite interesting. Uh, the other great thing about Kerim is he has his own mini-arc through the film, doesn't he? He's a bon vivant and he's a master of his environment, but he is also struggling to recapture his formal skills and prowess. You know, he gets shot at the gypsy camp and says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a clumsy old man. And of course, he, he really has to fight against that injury to then assassinate his former rival uh, in, in the scene just after that, when they take out Krilenku. Yeah, it also leads to one of the funnier mistakes in a Bond film, when, when you see him applying the blood to the, the gunshot wound. He should have just got one of his sons to do it. How many sons do you think he must have to run that whole operation? I mean, several of them are chauffeurs. One of them sort of just serving the coffee. He must have a dozen odd, mustn't he? Yeah, I was going to say, it must be double figures at least to be able to run his entire business empire from if it's just family members that are running it. It makes his job interviewing really easy, doesn't it? Are you my son? No. We'll let you know. And perhaps we should talk a little of Kincaid, who me and Phil cruelly missed out of our list. Um, I don't know why you want him on the list, Adam. I thought he was a dreadful ally. I mean, he gives a nice little welcome to Scotland, but what else does he do? He walks down that priest's hole and then he can't even make his way to the outhouse, can he, without, uh, without using a torch? Controversial. Well, that is controversial. And I have actually picked uh, those sequences at Skyfall as a future on the scene. So when we come to that episode, I will explain exactly why you were wrong to miss Kincaid off this list. This is not your fight. Try and stop me, you jumped up little shit. So it's on to our next segment, which is the James Bond Film Club. What film are we reviewing this week, Adam? Thank you very much. So this week we're taking a look at The Ipcress File uh, from 1965, so the same year as Thunderball, based on Len Dayton's novel of 1962. And Dayton is a much more John le Carre-esque spy novelist than he is an Ian Fleming one. Uh, it's directed by Sidney J. Fury, but crucially to us, it's produced by Harry Saltzman, of course, who co-produced the early Bond films with Cubby Broccoli. And he brings over a hell of a lot of Bond personnel. So Ken Adam is on production design. John Barry composes a score. Norm 
Norman Wonstall is on sound design and Peter Hunt is editing it. And this is very much an unglamorous anti-Bond that they all sort of did, almost as a kind of detox from the excesses of Thunderball. Uh, but this is a masterpiece of British cinema in its own right. Uh, it's Michael Caine in his very first lead role as Harry Palmer, who is sort of a working class and realistic uh, version of James Bond. He also loves women, but he seduces slightly older widows and has longer running affairs with them. He's insubordinate to his superiors and he likes to fall back on his initiative, but he's also forced to fill out paperwork on all of his jobs. He's an army grunt as opposed to a Navy officer. And when we first meet him, he's a lowly surveillance agent rather than this globe trotting super spy. Uh, he can handle himself in a fight and clearly has lots of knowledge of guns, but he also can't see without his glasses on. Um, and he's a gourmet and a sophisticate, but for home cooking and classical music rather than, again, for the finest wines and hotels across the world. So the plot of the film is that a government scientist has been kidnapped and Palmer is reassigned from his usual duties uh, with his old boss, Ross, who is incidentally played by Guy Dolman, Count Lippy in Thunderball. Uh, and he's reassigned to the much more interesting world of counterintelligence under Dolby, played by an actor called Nigel Green, who also co-starred with Kane in Zulu. Uh, and so the plot is to find this scientist. However, as Palmer's investigation progresses, they find a strange audio tape with the word Ipcress printed on it. And also, Ross's methods, or motives rather, in reassigning Palmer start to be questioned when he asks him to spy on his new boss, Dolby. And it all leads to the uncovering of what could be this big international brainwashing plot. What's amazing about this film is that the atmosphere is absolutely electrifying. And all of those Bond contributors uh, really bring that out. Adam sets a grubby and downbeat. Barry's score is enigmatic and off-kilter. Norman Wonstall's sound design is trippy and oppressive in the extreme. Uh, and Hunt's editing, just like he did with the Bond films, he's a master at slow building of tension with those explosions of violence. And Michael Caine is extraordinary. It's still one of his best performances. Much like Connery, he's sort of... I mean, he, it's kind of a Connery-esque performance, except he's allowed to play his working class roots in a way Connery couldn't. You know, it, there's an immense amount of charm and minimalism, that sort of hint of intellectualism, but the physical confidence that Connery brought to Bond. Kane's doing it all in a much more downbeat way. And there are also wonderful moments in the film where it's sort of deliberately undermining Bond. There's a moment when Palmer plunges down on this plunger, thinking something's going to explode in the kind of Q branch setting that they have. Uh, but it's a total fake out and he just confuses the sound of a pneumatic drill in the next sort of compartment. And also it's all UK locations, all very shabby, down to earth, realistic British locations. The one moment that you think is abroad is actually still in London. And the whole film takes place in just really boring locations like supermarkets and libraries. So the Ipcress file is just wonderful. It is very much the anti-Bond and that's why Saltzman made it at the time to contrast what he and Broccoli were starting to do with the more epic Bond films. But in its own right, one of the greatest British films ever made for me. Well, thanks a lot, Adam. I haven't actually watched the Chris file, but you make a compelling case there. I shall put it on my watch list. Quite interesting. We've got kind of that grittier, more realistic version of what the, the spy's job entails. Do you reckon the lead actors of these two could have switched? Perhaps Kane as Bond, Connery as Harry Palmer? Well, Kane could have been Bond, of course. If Kane had have been brought in instead of Roger Moore, you sense that it would have been a very similar kind of deal. Um, and yeah, Connery's a great enough character actor. He could probably have played Palmer. I'm not sure he could have, they could have done those roles as well as each other. 
you know, there's always a reason you cast them as they do. When they finally work together in The Man Who Would Be King, there is a reason that part that uh, Kane is peachy and Connery is Dravet. They just suit those roles perfectly. But yeah, it is a much more realistic look at spying. Like one of the Palmer's job at the start of the film is he's just surveying a house in somewhere in suburban London. And we hear him recording his report into this audio speaker. And he has this great joke. They had another bottle of milk today. So either they've got more people in the house or they're drinking more tea. Well, as long as Bernard Cribbins as a cabbie doesn't turn up, I guess it might have turned a bit ridiculous if that had happened. <laughs> Good to know that it uh, grounds itself in, in realism. Where to? Darling. East or west? West, of course. Oh, well, that's all right, then. So, with a modicum of trepidation, let's go over to Phil. It's been a mixed bag, hasn't it, so far, Phil, with your crazy theories. What do we have this week? This week, we have Dream Another Day. Let's be honest, Die Another Day is kind of one of those films that, for most Bond fans, is pretty bad. That's being kind, let's be honest. Now... So far, you're doing well, Phil. <laughs> We're with you. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's nothing contentious in the opening. Now, my theory this week is, again, it's a bit of a controversial one, but I actually think in Die Another Day, despite the title, I think Bond is actually in captivity and the entirety of this film is just him having some bizarre hallucination or bizarre dream where he's, he's at the point of death and he's just his past glories are coming back to him. And, you know, and we get that scene where he's with R slash Q and they've got all the memorabilia in the background. You know, you've got things like the Acro Star plane and Rosa Klebb's shoe. Are these just parts of Bond's brain where he's reminiscent of what has gone before him? Let's not forget on the aircraft carrier as well, he's also able to, to go into a hallucinatory state where he also dreams up what he's experiencing in captivity and the fact that he is able to control his heartbeat so that it drops below a certain point and goes into cardiac arrest. So what's to say that that's not all actually part of his own dreamscape where he is just having a cardiac arrest? It just so happens that he's dying moments of what has gone before him. Right. Uh, Bond, Bond is in fact dead. Um, so, Phil, at what point exactly do you think Bond dies? At what, from what point does it stop being real? And from what point does it become this weird fever dream? So I think the pre-titled credits where basically where you get Madonna doing the ridiculous theme tune, I think those sequences where he is getting, you know, waterboarded and poisoned by the scorpions, I think it either goes wrong and he's, you know, left in a coma or he's left seriously ill. Or it's, it's basically as soon as that point ends, that is where he actually dies. And the rest of the film is just those last moments before he, you know, in his coma or in his state of, um, you know, hallucinatory um, delusion. Well... No, Phil, but the, <laughs> I mean, I do believe that the Jinx character is so over the top in her dialogue, in the, the sexual innuendos, that I do, I do believe that might be a character dreamt up by Bond in his own mind. But I think, no, I think uh, Lee Tamahori's sent us an email, hasn't he? He's told you to pitch this, to get him out of jail free for just a dreadful film. I don't know why would Bond dream up such an awful story. No, just, uh, I, I'm not buying this on Phil, I'm sorry. I'm going to attack your theory, Phil, with a counter theory, which actually does solve Tamahori's problem. And it explains why the film is so bizarre and outlandish and unrealistic, which is basically the film is Inception. Colonel Moon goes over the waterfall. He's now on the dream machine. We know there is a dream machine in the film. It's right there. And we know that Bond, or rather R, Q, has a virtual reality headset. 
And so maybe when Bond is sort of back from the jail, he's put into this. And the rest of the film from that point on, from after the trade, is these two characters duking it out in a dream within a dream, in like cyberspace or some weird inception thing, where this is all happening in their dreams, which is why the cars are crazy kitted out. This is why there's this crazy Halle Berry character who can only speak in, in innuendo. That's why there are these ice palaces suddenly and, and why all the gadgetry is so unrealistic. And when Bond is then in the VR simulator doing the exercise, the training exercise, that is the dream within the dream. So maybe, Phil, you've accidentally solved Die Another Day. Well, isn't this the film where Moneypenny's on that VR headset? So is that that's another level of inception, is it? Yeah, Moneypenny's in on it as well. Yeah, Moneypenny then comes in at the very end because everyone's in limbo now because everyone's dead and Bond's sort of picking diamonds out of Halle Berry's navel. So Moneypenny has to go in to get him out of limbo, you know, like DiCaprio has to with Ken Watanabe in Inception. Moneypenny? I was, um, just testing it out. That's rather hard, isn't it? Yes. Very. So uh, on to the next segment, which is Delve Deeply. So uh, this week we're going to delve deeply into a non-EU European country, not the UK, but Switzerland, uh, a place that uh, Ian Fleming visited regularly, which explains why it features so prominently in several of the Bond novels. And let's not forget Bond's mother, Monique Delacroix, is, of course, Swiss. And so by extension, obviously, the country was always going to be playing some major role in the Bond film universe, too. And we first see the beautiful scenery of this landlocked country in Goldfinger. If you remember, Bond has his Aston Martin DB5, plenty of iconic photography of Connery leaning up against the car. And uh, anyway, in that scene, he's tracking Goldfinger's car with Q's gadget and uh, keeping a safe distance away on the mountainous winding roads of the Furka Pass, which, uh, despite some modifications to the roads, is every bit as beautiful as it was in the 1960s, as it appears in the film. And, of course, he also encounters Tilly Masterson there, but, uh, unfortunately, the gas station where he drops her off in the village of Endermet is uh, no longer there, although there is a hotel which now stands in its place called the Hotel Aurora, uh, where you can stay for uh, roughly 140 Swiss francs. Uh, or you could stay in the nearby Hotel Burgadil, where the Goldfinger production team and actors stayed. And of course, um, Switzerland plays a massive role in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. We get the, uh, the mountaintop, uh, which is kind of a mecca now for any Bond fan. It's not accessible by road, so uh, you have to uh, take the cable car up there, or of course you could uh, go via helicopter. There is a helipad which was placed specifically next to the uh, the building for the filming of On Her Majesty's, and there's a lovely restaurant as well that you can visit on the, the top of that mountain, and just incredible views as we see in the film. And uh, one other interesting area of Switzerland I wanted to just touch on was the, the Contra Dam, which, of course, in the film of GoldenEye takes the place of uh, the Archangel Chemical Weapons Facility. And you can still do the, the Bond bungee jump, 220-meter uh, jump, costs around 250 Swiss francs. That one is open seasonally, Easter through to October open every Saturday and Sunday. So lots of uh, positive reviews online for that one. I mean, I, I'm not one for heights, but uh, I believe, have you done a bungee jump, Adam? I think you've you've done one, haven't you, in New Zealand? Uh, yes, I did do a bungee jump in New Zealand. Uh, they, they sort of, it's over a lake, it's over Lake Taupo. It's, I think, the oldest bungee jump in the world because A.J. Hackett, the Kiwi, invented bungee. 
Uh, I, I've been, I was in Freiburg in Switzerland once and I ended up in a, in a rap bar, a sort of Swiss French rap bar. The only lyric I can remember was, was this uh, rather try hard guy saying, c'est vrai, c'est vrai, il y a un oiseau dans le bateau, which means it's true, it's true, there's a bird on the boat. A double taking pigeon, perhaps. I was about to say, I wonder if he saw the gondola or bondola. Okay, so it's over to Q Branch. And uh, before we go to Phil for Q Branch, I'd like to draw your attention to an email by Jack Benyon. He says that he's loving the podcast, which is always uh, good to hear. Uh, he's kind of mentioned Phil's previous theory, uh, the crazy theory of the, the double O's. And, uh, and Jack also agrees with me and Adam. Uh, he's quoted the first chapter of Moonraker, and I'll quote it here. While he bond number 007, the senior of the three men in the service who had earned the 00 number sat at his comfortable desk doing paperwork and flirting with their secretary. The word senior there in that passage indicates that Bond is the senior 00 in the novels and therefore in the films as well. So uh, thanks a lot, Jack, for your correspondence. Good to hear that you're enjoying the show and uh, good to hear that you're against some of Phil's crazy theories. And again, it's only a theory, so they're there to be disproven, and often they are. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. A really quick uh, cue branch this week, so we're really grateful to everyone that's been getting in touch with us on our social media channels. I thought we'd kick us off this week by um, looking at a recent poll that was launched through the search engine Yahoo, uh, which asks for the best James Bond movie from the point of view of the fans and from uh, sort of leading James Bond scholars. Now, there were kind of a lot of the usual suspects that you'd expect to see on the list. Interestingly enough, the number one that came out was actually Goldeneye. Um, I believe in our chart, we actually rated that about number seven. So what do you guys make of that, Charlie? Do you think that was kind of reflective of, of what Bond fans actually think of the franchise, or do you think it possibly missed a few of the big hitters? Um, I, I do think it's quite interesting that GoldenEye featured quite so highly. I think part of it is just, you know, in terms of fans who will be of the internet age and who are quite prominent of using it, I think, like us, they'll have been of an age where GoldenEye was probably the first one that they saw come out or that they were aware of. Um, it's a great film in its own right, of course. It, it is the superior Brosnan film. I, I am, I'm, I'm interested. I think its stature is growing, isn't it? Slowly, year by year, the, the further we go from it, it's 26 years old now, Goldeneye. It still feels incredibly fresh and modern and up to date. So I, I think it's not unlikely that in a few years' time, even, you would probably hold up Goldfinger, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Goldeneye as the three peaks of a traditional, epic, classic Formula Bond film, I guess. Yeah, I think with that extra bit of time, I think people will appreciate the uh, the Brosnan version of Bond even more, uh, particularly if we do get a Brosnan style that uh, that comes after Craig. Obviously, people do love Goldeneye, quite rightly, uh, but they might get even more love, perhaps, in the future. Okay, thanks, guys. Um, so Double M. Martin got in touch with us to ask, of all the Bond actors, um, who dressed the best, in our opinion, formal dress only so of all the bond actors that wore the uh, the kind of dinner jackets and the kind of three-piece tuxedos who was who was the best wearing them i mean probably not daniel craig unfortunately despite tom ford's best efforts it always looks like you put a poncho on a pug doesn't it when daniel craig turns up in a dinner jacket 
Roger Moore always looked incredible in dinner jackets, didn't he? I don't think there was, I mean, even in the safari suit, I don't think there was an outfit you could put Roger Moore in and he didn't just look absolutely dapper and charming. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it'd probably be Roger Moore or Connery, to be honest. They're probably the, the main two that kind of pulled it off so well. I'm always impressed by Craig's suits, though, how tight-fitting they are and how, how they don't rip. Any physical movement surely would rip them to shreds, but he's managed to do all those action sequences quite well. I have a dinner jacket. There are dinner jackets and dinner jackets. This is the letter, and I need you looking like a man who belongs at that table. So that brings us to the final segment of this week's episode, which is the quiz. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So it's the, the journey to the Cubby Cup. Phil currently has two points, Adam has one, and I have not done so well yet to, yet to score, so I'm hoping this will be my first victory, but uh, perhaps not. Over to you, Adam, our quiz master for today. Thank you very much. I'm very confident this will be your week, Martin. So, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, I thought this week we'd do another higher or lower quiz. I did it with sort of James Bond auction items way back in series one. Uh, we're going to do it again, but this time with James Bond film running times. We've all spent a lot of time watching the Bond films, but exactly how long have we spent watching each one? So uh, four questions each. Tell you what, Martin, we'll start with you. So we're going to start with Dr. No, the very first Bond film. That was 110 minutes long. Is Thunderball higher or lower in running time than Doctor No? I think the underwater scenes alone feel like 110 minutes, so I'll go higher. Uh, yep, yeah, you're quite right. The uh, underwater sequences alone last five and a half hours. Uh, but <laughs> no, Thunderball, yeah, it is higher. 130 minutes, so first point on the board. So, Phil, Thunderball, 130 minutes long. On Her Majesty's Secret Service, higher or lower? Oh, that's a tricky one because it, it does build up quite a lot. I'm going to say higher, but only just. You are correct. It's 12 minutes higher. It's 142 minutes on a Majesty's Secret Service, an extra 12 minutes. So back to Martin. On a Majesty's Secret Service, 142 minutes. Tomorrow Never Dies, higher or lower? Well, I do like that film, and I do remember wanting it to be longer. So I'll go lower for this one. You're correct to say lower. It's at a very lean 119 minutes, just short of a couple of hours. So back to you, Phil. Tomorrow Never Dies, 119 minutes long. Goldfinger, higher or lower? I'm going to say lower. You are correct. Goldfinger clocks in 110 minutes. It's the joint second shortest with uh, Dr. No. Shouldn't have said that. It's probably giving away the next one. Uh, so, Martin, your next question. I've done a Phil. I've done a Phil error. So Goldfinger, 110 minutes. Skyfall, higher or lower? Is Skyfall the shortest of all the Bond films? Pretty confident it's not. <laughs> I'll go higher. It is higher. It's 143 minutes, so quite a lot higher than Goldfinger. Phil, back to you. Skyfall, 143 minutes. Licence to kill, higher or lower? I'm going to say lower. You're correct. It's 10 minutes lower. Licence to Kill, 133 minutes. So three apiece. Last question each. Martin, back to you. Licence to Kill, 133 minutes. Moonraker, higher or lower? It's quite tough. I'll... Um, let's go lower. You're correct to go lower. Moonraker is seven minutes shorter. It's 126 minutes. So four out of four. Phil, to stay in the game. Moonraker, 126 minutes long. A view to a kill, higher or lower? Oh, blimey. Um, 
I'm going to say lower, but only just. I'm afraid it's five minutes longer. It's higher. It's yeah. 131 minutes. So, Martin, you do, on that last question, take your first win in the Cubby Cup. Okay, so that uh, that means that the, in the race for the Cubby Cup, Phil is still in the lead, but me and Adam both on one point now. It's all to play for. So uh, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks a lot for joining us. We'll be back next week. But uh, in the meantime, do check out our social media pages or send us an email uh, if you want to uh, contact us with your questions, theories, ideas. So that's the end for this week. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Now, I'm sure I put that tray of shots somewhere, James, but I just can't find it.